I want to jump right in because we don't have enough time uh, to fully do everything we need to do with this very complicated topic. But I've been so excited to get to it. The issue before us is this. When is association endorsement? I get this question probably more than any other question. It's not framed that way normally. People are wondering when I can relate to somebody. Can I go to this party? Can I engage with this? And I finally have to kind of break it down for them and say, this is actually philosophically what you're trying to get to. This is what you're trying to understand. Can I associate with something in this culture and not be accused of endorsing it? Let me give it to you in a metaphor or a picture. Let's say your friend from college calls you up 20 years later calls you up and says, I'm in town. I'd love to have lunch with you. And you say, I would love to have lunch with you. I can't believe you're in town. Yes, meet me at this place. It's my favorite place to go. I know everybody there. I know all the waiters. I know everybody. It's going to be great. Great. I'll meet you there at 12. You're so excited to see them. You go, you walk into the restaurant, and the person that's greeting you from college, you know, you haven't seen them for years. They, uh, they stand up and they say, Andy, I'm over here. And they're wearing a... Um, a Biden-Harris shirt, and they're reading a Barack Obama book, and you wonder, if I'm seen with them, do I have those views? Or they're wearing a Magna hat and a Trump shirt. Pick, pick whatever you want. Pick whatever you don't want to be associated with. It's not a political thing. Just pick something that you feel like, I would be embarrassed to be sitting with that person because it looks like now maybe I'm on their side. I don't want to associate with them. Am I endorsing them by being with them? See, this is a, a common thing all throughout culture right now. Do we need to talk about Bud Light? Uh, do we need to talk about Pepsi? When Kendall Jenner uh, gave the Pepsi to the cop a couple years ago and was canceled, do we need to talk about people standing or not standing for the national anthem or wearing or not wearing the shirt with the gay pride symbol on it when that's what's being produced for you to play in that MLS game? Do we need to talk about all the different situations that we find ourselves in in this very complicated culture when we don't know exactly what to do because we want to reach the loss but we also want to keep our purity and we also want to be different do you make a wedding cake for the gay wedding that you wouldn't necessarily agree with but you're just a really good wedding cake maker and they've asked you to honor them by making a cake do you do that or do you not do it and friends it even gets way more complicated than that I've had so many people ask me Andy can we go to this wedding we completely disagree with it. And I've had couples who have disagreed, husband and wife, who have had severe disagreements about, can we fund this honeymoon? Can we go to this? Do we not go to this? Do we shun them? Do we not shun them? All of it is really very complicated. You're a contractor. Can you build that, that thing in that house that's not going to be God-honoring? Can you do that? You're a really good contractor. So many of us find ourselves in situations where we don't know if I'm associating with this thing, am I endorsing it? And how do I keep my witness? And how do I honor Christ? And how do I engage with this world all at the same time? It's actually pretty complicated. Our only hope to navigate the waters of this culture that we're in is to study to meditate upon, to remember 
and to gaze at the character of God as found and revealed in Christ, who freely presented the gospel, but also did it without creating any obstacles, who never peddled a cheap grace, but always gave a free grace. And the only way I think we'll be able to navigate these very turbulent cultural waters that we're in is to study and look at for a long time who Jesus is and what he did. We're going to try to look at all sides of this. Now, on the front end of this, I have a lot of scripture because we need it. Uh, One kind of main text, but a lot of other things I'm going to read, they'll all be on the screen. And then after this, I'll give us four points and get us out of here. Matthew chapter 9 is kind of the main one. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him, and Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The question here, all the way back to Matthew chapter 9 is, is Jesus, by associating with these tax collectors and these sinners, endorsing their behavior? And that was the question that came up. All the people outside of the room were going, how could your teacher? You said he's pure. You said he's the holy one. How could he ever have dinner with them? How could he ever go in their homes? How could he ever be associated with them? Jesus heard of that rumor that was going around, and he said, this is what I desire. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, of course, we know Jesus wasn't always so gracious. We have to look at all the texts or many of the texts. Uh, We know that he made the cat of nine tails and ran all the money changers out. So he wasn't just lost I fair. I'm just going to love everybody. No, it's way more complicated than that. Uh, To make a cat of nine tails, they say, takes about a couple hours. So it was a meditated thing to run the money changers out. And we see later in Matthew chapter 23, but woe to you, this is Jesus, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is not exactly meek and mild Jesus here. So in one sense, he's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. In another sense, with the Pharisees, he's very harsh, not wanting to associate with them at all. And plenty of times where Scripture asks us, as Christians in this world, to disassociate. For example, Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the world. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And then in Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. We all know those people, don't we? They're just sowing seeds of discord. They're just letting people believe things that aren't true. They're sowing little rabbit trails of division over and over and over again and, and just trying to divide groups or families or churches. It says warn them once, warn them twice, and then get away. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't sort, associate with them. Don't endorse them. Second Thessalonians 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you have received from us. Pretty direct. God also calls us not to judge others. Romans 2, therefore have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I'm gonna go ahead and go down to the next one, 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a need for separation. Finally, then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you've received from us how you ought to walk and please the Lord just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, here's what we see. When we take all of this, all of the New Testament scripture, and we look at Jesus, here's the pattern that starts to emerge. Over Jesus' lifetime, he seemed to be very gracious and long-suffering with people that don't know him or his power. The sinners, the tax collectors. Because unlike us, Jesus assumes they don't have the power of God yet. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Why should they act like Christians when they say that they're not Christians? And Jesus tends to be very long-suffering with them. And on the other hand, with those who are claiming that they know him, with those who claim that they have uh, the market of what uh, religion looks like in that day and age, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the prideful ones, Jesus tends to be very harsh, not wanting to associate with them. In the text we read, two of those texts are don't associate with this fellow Christian. Not the world, but don't associate with this fellow Christian. But then with the world, if you can be in the world while maintaining your purity and your holiness, go for it because the world needs to know the light in the middle of the darkness. It's really interesting. We tend to do the opposite, don't we? We tend to chastise the culture instead of weep with it. To look at all the people that don't know Jesus and are lost and say, how could you ever think that way? Because we thought that way. Because everybody thinks that way without Christ and without his power, without the word of God, without the Holy Spirit. And then Christians within the church who do some horrible things we tend to cover up. And yet it seems like in scripture it's a little bit opposite from that. Back to the main text. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's the only time in scripture that Jesus said, go learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the majority of us probably still think that what Christianity is about is sacrifice. 
we've got to sacrifice morally, we've got to sacrifice all of these things, and then Jesus will eventually like us and forgive us, and we get to go to heaven. And non-believers, they don't necessarily think that the Bible's not true. They just look at that formulation and they say, hmm, it seems like a risky bet. I sacrifice all of these things, my money, my time, all of these things to be associated with these Christian people, and then I'm hoping at the end of all of that, Jesus is going to put me into heaven. It just, I'm not saying it's untrue, it just seems like a risky bet. But Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, let me be very clear, there's still sacrifice in the Christian life. We do give of our time. We do give of our money. We do give of our energies. We do sacrifice to send missionaries around this world, hopefully. But mercy comes first. And my evidence for that is Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So because of the mercy that you know of God, now you can sacrifice not to get something from him because you've already gotten it. Now distribute it, which is holy and acceptable, your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You can think about all the ways that we could be conformed by the world. There's old vestiges of how that could be. One new modern way we can be conformed by the world is by being angry all the time, by being anxious all the time, by just holding up with all the people that look like us and think like us and, and lobbying threats to the other people. That's a way to look like the world. Instead of to look like Jesus looked to the world, going into the darkness with the light of the gospel, he goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind by, so that you might test and discern what the will of God is, what's the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, four quick points. Number one, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the first kind of point to that I want to make is mercy to individuals. See, Christianity's view of culture is unique. We hold together uh, an un nerving, an, an, it should be an unnerving amount of grace given to people with an unwavering belief in holiness. Both of those things are held together. And as we do that individually to people, it is a powerful thing. Two stories really quickly. Uh, number one, Jack Miller, I've told you this story before, the other one I haven't. Jack Miller, uh, Westminster professor, uh, starter of sonship, a famous story about him. He was older, uh, I think he was in his 80s at this point, and uh, he was at this restaurant with a bunch of other pastors after a, like a plenary talk at some kind of conference somewhere, and uh, Jack wandered off, and after like 30 minutes, everybody tried to find him, and they started to get worried about him. Where's Jack? Nobody can find him, and he had wandered off. They checked the bathrooms. They asked the bartender. They asked the waiter, have you seen the guy that was with us, the older guy? No, nobody's seen him. Gone on for like 40 minutes, and nobody can find him. So now that everybody at the table is like super worried, we lost Jack Miller. He's got to speak tomorrow night. What are we going to do? And they went outside the restaurant and they see him in a public park across the street laying down in the wet grass. And they run over there to find him. And there Jack is on his back. And beside him is this drunk guy on his back. 
And Jack had seen them walk out of the bar and go across into the field and lay down and looking up at the stars. And Jack went right with them and laid down right beside them, stone cold sober, and was there in the wet grass with this guy trying to sleep it off, presenting the gospel to him. Just sharing over and over and over about the love of Jesus to him. Tim Keller uh, died this week. Got to say goodbye to him on Monday. He was so kind to me. Uh, he, I would send him emails, call him all the time. He always returned my calls, always sent my emails back. Sent him an email about uh, me and Elizabeth at one time, that's a couple years ago, and he wrote me back and he said, you know I actually wrote a book on marriage, don't you? And I was like, yes, I just... <laughs> I didn't want to buy it. <laughs> I've got a lot of Tim's stories, but I'll just tell one. Um, I was part of a think tank with a lot of people. We were trying to figure out some things in the PCA. They wanted two young pastors in there, so they invited me and a guy named Greg Thompson, who's the son of this church. And uh, we were there with all the big people. The first night Tim saw me, he said, I don't know you, we're gonna have dinner tonight. I said, great. And we just talked about Pittsburgh Steelers football the whole time, actually. At that think tank, we decided that at one point we needed to have this big debate between Tim and this other guy in front of the PCA so, people, so we could pattern for everybody how to disagree and still get along. We were at the head table. It was Brian Chappell, the guy who I won't mention, Tim, myself, and Elizabeth, who had no idea who any of these people are. She's absolutely, she's like, who are these people? I'm like, that's Tim. You should probably know him. Okay. Um, and so we're at this table. And this, the other guy who he's debating, who I won't mention his name, who I love too, but this story doesn't put him in the best light. His son had all of these figures, characters, like Dungeons and Dragons kind of like fantasy figures. And he kept like brushing them off. We're, we're at the head table. We're discussing the debate rules. It's like five minutes before the debate. There's two or 3,000 people in the room. There's a lot of tension for this very moment. Tim sees that happen to this other kid who's not his son, brings him over, puts him on his lap, takes off his reading glasses, takes all of his figures, puts it on the table and says, you tell me about each and every one of them. And sat there with this 10-year-old kid, caring and giving mercy to this individual with all the weight of everything that was happening around. And I'll never forget, they were walking up to do the debate, and they hadn't even established the rules yet. Because all Tim wanted to do was to care for this 10-year-old kid that wasn't being cared for at that moment. And as they were walking up, one guy said to the other guy, Tim, what are we going to do? And Tim put his big paw around him and said, we'll be fine. Mercy to an individual. Do you know how much it would change the culture if we are willing to look around the restaurants, to look around the places of our work, to look around the soccer fields and see who's not being cared for? Who can I give mercy to? Who can I love right now? Who can I come alongside? Mercy to the individual. Here's the second. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy in our callings. Because there are two things. There's the calling of our conscience and the calling of our convictions. Now this is where it's going to get answered a little bit more. Not all of us are going to have the same conscience pricked on certain issues. 
So in my office, as I've told you, there have been multiple, multiple parents that are trying to decide and often deciding by their conscience two different ideas of whether or not you can go to that wedding or not go to that wedding. It's not always black and white. And the reason we know that is because all the diversity we see in the scripture. Just take, for example, the exile. Esther used her beauty and put herself through a, a, a regimen for a year to win the favor of the king to save the Jews from Haman. Jeremiah just wept the whole time. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet and tried to create an environment and a culture of hope to remind people of where they're going. Daniel was subversive in his leadership and never sought political power but wanted to disassociate himself from the Babylonian food to find some kind of holiness in that matter. And then Joseph went all into the political power game. All of those saints that we love all responded in different ways based on their gifts to the culture for how Jesus had led them in their conscience. But we also need shared convictions. But that's not that easy either. There is co-centric circles to convictions. There's three of them, actually. The first one is all of us need to be concerned about things. The second one, some of us will be responsible. In the smaller circle, some will have influence. Let me give you an example. Abortion. All of us need to be concerned about it. All of us need to know it's a sin. Some of us will be a little bit more responsible for it. You might work at a crisis pregnancy center, for example. So you're a little bit more responsible for it. And then a very small subset will actually have influence over legislation and other things that you can actually do to make different changes in the culture. But not everybody with influence is going to uh, have everybody with concern. Not everybody's going to have responsibility. Who has, you see, all of these things are different. Uh, poverty. All of us need to be concerned deeply about poverty. But some of us might have the responsibility of going down and doing Meals on Wheels or uh, taking sandwiches to people. And then a very small subset might have influence over the national conversation of what we do with people who are impoverished. You see how that works? So there are things that are shared, but then there are things where more and more and more you have responsibility or influence in your calling to culture. Now, here's what I'm asking. I'm going to go, the next two points are very quick, so let me go a little bit longer on this one. What I'm asking for us today, in one sense, as Christians, is to quit being um, mentally lazy, which leads to intellectual snobbery. When we're mentally lazy, theologically lazy, that will result in an intellectual snobbery where we simply just trope out the same themes that we've heard from somebody else. And you know what this world needs, what we need so desperately, is for Christians to have an unnerving amount of grace and mercy and an unwavering belief in holiness and to hold those things together, like we've already mentioned, but to think finally and deeply about our conscience, to think deeply I mean, this is where we get lazy. To think deeply about where the Holy Spirit is leading you and how you can please the Lord. Because it might be not watching those movies anymore. It might be not looking at those websites anymore. It might be giving more money away because money's 
got his fingers in you now. It's your security is what the stock market's doing. It might be something else. And we need Christians, again, to go back to the basics and say, Holy Spirit, lead me in my conscience. Convict me of my sins, but also lead me in the ways that I can be the most pleasing to you in this world that we live in. In other words, don't just go along with the flow. Because Schaefer said that's not going to end well. Francis Schaefer in his book, How... Then Shall We Live says, most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society the way a child catches the measles. But people with understanding realize that their presuppositions should be chosen after careful consideration of their worldview, of which worldview is true. Here's a simple but profound truth. If there are no absolutes by which to judge a society, the society is absolute. Boy, he wrote this, I I can't remember the date. Had to have been like... Well, I want to guess. I'll find out between the services. Y'all start Googling that and somebody tell me after. Uh, that, that phrase is so true. If we strip out the absolutes, then society gets to be the absolute. And then it's going to be a, a bunch of moving marks, right? Society is left with one man, an elite, filling the vacuum left by the loss of Christian consensus, which originally gave us form and freedom. Or in the other words, as Augustine said, and the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. Now, let me go very quickly these next two points and wrap us up on time. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy to the world. You know, the, the best way that you can probably think about how we engage the world is being an ambassador. Uh, that's 2 Corinthians 5. We're ambassadors in this world. And an ambassador goes to another country but they live on sovereign soil in that country. If you go to the British um, embassy in DC, which you all should, uh, there's a line, there's a a Churchill statue, and then there's a line. And uh, on one side, it says the sovereign territory of the United States, and you cross over and it says the sovereign territory of the British government. And so there's that line where it establishes a sovereign territory. That's what we do as Christians. You know, as um, the Celtics in the 6th century, I just love this story. They had this missionary philosophy called peregrination. And peregrination means we're just going to go walk around, peregrinate. We're going to go walk around until we find people that don't know Jesus. And then we're going to tell them about it. And so they would just pack a bag for like a couple months and... Let's just go find people that don't know Jesus. And we'll just go walk until we find people. And they would often hit the shores with their boats of these little islands where nobody knew the gospel. And when that happened, they would sit, I mean, they'd get on their knees and they would always say the same thing. The kingdom of God is now here. We are bringing the kingdom of God to you. It's a beautiful way to think about it. When you go to your uh, sports team practice and you're a Christian, The kingdom of God has now come there. When you go to that restaurant and you're a Christian, the kingdom of God has now come there. When you go to your workplace tomorrow morning, you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is now there. And you're an ambassador to give them mercy and to show them the glories of Christ. Lastly, mercy to you. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you go back to Matthew chapter 9, and you see that picture of Jesus dining with those disciples, or those soon-to-be disciples, Matthew anyway, dining with those sinners, 
and you see all the people outside looking in, casting all of these verbal stones, wondering how a holy man could do such awful things in associating with those people. Where are you in that picture? Are you outside? If you're a Christian, I hope you realize you're the one he's dining with. Your growth and sanctification doesn't mitigate that your identity is and always will be in justification. I know that's a complex theological statement, but you should write that one down. Just because you clean up well doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't saved you a horrible sinner from the pains of hell. And, and yes, you've grown in your sanctification and you don't look that way anymore, but it doesn't mean that you didn't. And it doesn't mean that Jesus associated himself with you when everybody else ran away from you. I want you to think about, uh, it's a common question we ask in like community groups and stuff like this. I want you to think about your most embarrassing moment. Everybody has one. I've got 120. <laughs> but surely you can find one. And you, you might need to close your eyes. I'm not suggesting that. It's a little cheesy. But if you need to close your eyes just to, you know, prevent distractions, do it. Think of, the, think of a moment in your life where everybody left you. You were embarrassed. You were ashamed. You just wanted the the world to open up and swallow you whole so you could get out of that situation. You're self-conscious. You're scared. Think of those moments in your life when you're incredibly lonely. You know what those moments, when everybody else has left you, that's when Jesus says, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's when he announces to the world He's with me. She's with me. Jesus is not scared to associate himself with you when you're at your worst, and he does it while not endorsing your sin. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 2, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing their praise. And on Ascension Sunday, when Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, because of Hebrews 2, we know that he's not ashamed besides the throne of the Father to say, they're with me. I won't lose one of them. And we get all of them home. They're on my tab. And I'll close with this. Um, I was speaking with Stephen Jones. He's a missionary. I Zoom, um, I'm grateful to Zoom with a lot of missionaries and try to encourage them. And Stephen and I were speaking Wednesday morning and we were talking about counseling theory. And we were talking about uh, how when you're counseling somebody Sometimes they're already naked and broken and they're already shameful and you have to take the righteousness of Christ and wrap it around them. And then there's other times that they're not 
and you've got to take a, a sheet and you've got to wrap that around them and then say, and this is metaphor, take off all of those dirty grave clothes and repent and let Jesus clothe you and I'm gonna cover you up in a way that you can repent. Some of us this morning need to remember that your shame is covered, that Jesus loves you when you're at your worst, not at your best. He desires mercy and not sacrifice and others need to be so assured of his mercy that you can repent. Take off the things, the dirty grave clothes that you're still wearing. Come to him, ask him for hope and for help. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, we probably as a congregation, 